Hello and welcome to Dance Talks. Today is May 7th, 2020, and my guest is Aldi Lewis. Aldi is the founder and director of AL Efficacy Movement. Aldi, welcome to Dance Talks. How you doing? <laughs> Great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good, doing good. Good. Well, I want you to share your amazing life story with us. Can you give it to us from the top? I guess I could. Um, <laughs> so now when you say from the top, I assume as uh, the very beginning, meaning even as a kid. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's start with dancing in my family, not professionally, but just in general, was a was a um, uh, a normal thing in my and, and we even had competitions within the family as who was the best dancer in the in the family. And always had this uncle that we call Bilbo. Uh, his name is Charles Collins. Uh, that was always considered the best dancer in the family. But that was from, of course, his particular era. And I was like a little kid when I first started hearing about his exploits as a dancer. Um, and if I think on it, his era would have been the Lindy. Mm. You know, um, yeah, it would definitely would have been the Lindy. Um, so. Nineteen twenties, thirties. Well, he was born in the twenties. Okay. He was born in the twenties, uh, so that lets you know pretty much. Yeah. I think he might have been born around twenty-four, mm-hmm. nineteen twenty-four, something like that. Um, so that kind of like lets you know what his era would have been. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I just would hear of his exploits. I never ever actually saw him. And it wouldn't be just his fast dancing, when I say saw him, saw him dance. Uh, And it wouldn't be just his fast dancing or up-to-date dancing, but it would also be the way that they said he would slow dance. And even in his slow dancing, there would be flips that would occur. (laughs) You know, and and it would be what I guess you would call, um, um, what kind of dance would that be? it's like a slow drag. It's a slow yeah. drag, but at the same time, um, well, I can't think. What's the style where uh, Fred Astaire would do um, ballroom? Mm-hmm. Uh, so another way of saying it would be like ballroom and a slow drag combination. And um, again, from what I would hear and from the description, that's what it would sound like. Anyways, I I always knew about that for. Uh, my whole life. Uh, And then people didn't know that when it came to -to up-to-date dancing or contemporary dancing, how people were seeing me in high school. And my my family had never really seen me dance until until my senior year. Uh, When I was in high school, and then that's when they started comparing, started throwing Mm -hmm. out the parents and saying, oh, you better than Bilbo. You better than Bilbo, you know, and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. So, but outside of that, uh, when it comes to uh, dancing technique-wise, um, it all really started when I was in the um, fourth or fifth grade. It might have been fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was probably fifth grade, where my sister had uh, this teacher named Dolly, Dolly Johnson. And she overheard one of the kids 
mentioned about dance classes at a studio, and she was interested, so she she came home and asked my mother if she could take dance classes. And so my mother agreed and took her to the studio where the kids were taking classes. And in this case, it was ballet uh, and tap, primarily ballet and tap. And I just went along uh, just to watch and be, you know, just be part of it. Uh, uh, In the classroom? In the studio? Yeah, to watch. Well, that's that's because the parents at the time, you could come sit in the studio and watch your child. Oh, okay. Not wait in the lobby? Right. Okay. It's probably not a thing of waiting in the lobby because the the place and the space didn't have that kind of a waiting room type deal. Yeah, and this was in Flint, Michigan, around what? Uh, This was in What year? This was in And um, so, but anyway, so I'm taking, so my sister's taking class, and uh, it was her uh, and maybe one other African-American, and everybody else was white. So, uh, but it was still at a time that parents were feeling uncomfortable about touching anyone that was of color. Mm. So when, towards the end of the year, uh, when my sister needed a partner for ballet, that's when I was asked if I would be willing to take class to partner her for her for the recital. So it wasn't like I had interest in dance, mm-hmm. really to help my sister participate during the recital that I actually got involved in dance. So um, anyway, so from that point on, I started taking tap. And, uh, and when I say tap, I'm speaking to really bare basics. Uh, would you just know what the shuffle is, the ball chain, um, a couple of riffs, um, and, you know things like that. So, and, and it wasn't it wasn't um, uh, uh, advanced of any type. It was just, as I said, basic tap. So that's how I actually got started in dance. After a couple of years, um, I was asked to participate in what they call the Flint Ballet Theater. I was the first African American accepted into the Flint Ballet Theater. Uh, and this occurred because my my teacher, who was Dolly, was one of the teachers that was part of the organization. And so the only way I assume in order for you to be part of the Flint Ballet Theater, you had to be a student from the Association of Teachers okay. to participate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I assume outside kids elsewhere uh, couldn't be involved. But at that time, I didn't know. I just knew that uh, the request that I would participate occurred. And by uh, my mother agreeing for me to do it, 
uh, that's how I became a member of the Flint Ballet Theater. And uh, so, and again, it wasn't a thing where I was like just interested in dance. It's just that I could, that I just knew how to dance. And, um, but when I, in the ninth grade, no, in the 10th grade, I was, became very, very interested in wrestling. It was a sport of wrestling. And at that time, um, I was told in order to wrestle, I had to come during the evenings and stay late, which meant I would have to eliminate any dance classes uh, in order for me to participate in wrestling. And I was fine with that. But what the outside of not taking dance classes in order to be a part of the Flint Ballet Theater, the requirement was that you had to be taking classes mm-hmm. um, from your regular teacher, yeah, and then to participate. Well, at that time, I I had made my decision that I was going to wrestle, and that was it. Uh, and at first, they say, okay, well, you can't be in the ballet theater. I was, I said, okay, good. So I went about my business, but then um, they wanted me to continue at some point, and, and so they say, okay, you don't have to take class, uh, but we still want you to be part of the company. And what did you and do with so, them, like Nutcracker every year, or what was the season like? No, 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 this was, they were uh, the Peter and uh, Hansel and Gretel and Peter Pan and uh, a couple of chore- pieces of choreography that they would have a, a guest artist from around the country come in and uh, choreograph Great. for the Flint Ballet Theater. So um, that was the that was my experience with the uh, with the Flint Ballet Theater. Now, yeah. um, afterwards, and I go to college. I had, remember I had stopped taking classes around the ninth or tenth grade. Well, before so, you go on to college, when you when you grew up with your family having these competitions, did you not participate until you said that you didn't dance until tenth grade? Yeah, you're just your family competition, like just oh, what family was that like in the kitchen, or you know what was that like? And when did you when did you hop in? Well, I only knew of the competition in the minds of my family. Okay. It was not a, because they, everybody always just simply spoke on who was the best dancer. And I was not ever part of that conversation because no one had ever actually saw me dance. Only people that saw me dance were kids from school. Mm -hmm. So it was more like a legacy that everybody in the family knew. Got it. Right. And even then, I was winning all the dance contests that the kids would have uh-huh. of my generation. Uh-huh. So, and I became known around the city as the best dancer in the city. But even then, my family didn't really know. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time they saw me dance, and I think, it, in fact, it happened at the... Um, not a graduation, it was, it was prior to graduation. And I went to a club and, and some of my family members were there. And, oh, and my cousin, one of my cousins was playing, he was in, playing a band at that club. And so when people got up to dance, uh, you know, uh, 
there was kind of a little dance contest going on. And I got up and participated, and then the whole place went wild. And then my that's when, you know, uh, remnants of my family that were there saw me dance and kick butt. So that's when all of a sudden they started saying, well, you, you're better than Bill <laughs> You know, so that's how uh, my name started carrying its weight with the family. I got it. Okay, through word of mouth, through word of mouth, even if the others hadn't seen me. Good. Um, but anyway, outside of that, um, when I um, went to school, which was Michigan State University, mm-hmm. um, I didn't, I was studying, first I studied pre-veterinary medicine. And then uh, eventually I changed it to pre-med. Uh, and then as time eventually, well, going into all, everything, I would just say by the time I uh, I was there for four years, I had changed it to engineering, anything to do with math and science. Mm-hmm. So so interest in terms of theater and things that sort didn't occur, theater, dance, or anything didn't occur until my towards the middle of my sophomore year at school. And that only occurred because someone had approached me uh, because I have, you know, again, dance contests in, on campus, and I was winning all of those. And this freshman, I was a sophomore, and this freshman came up to me and asked me why was, why, why was I in college. Mm. And, of course, I said, well, you know, studying to become, I want to become a doctor at some point. And that person said, well, my understanding is that when you come to school, you come there to to obtain some kind of uh, uh, trade or uh, what kind of career that you could have in some type of profession and things of that sort. But you're so gifted at what you do when you dance. I don't understand why that's something that you wouldn't pursue because if you become, let's say you become a, uh, uh, a cardiologist, what are you going to do? Jump up and start tap dancing on your heart to make them feel better. <laughs> now, now, mind you, I wasn't really tapping at this time because, again, I only had the very basics of tap. But just to use that analogy was kind of funny, mm-hmm. right? So, um uh, that's probably the first time that the seed was planted in my mind uh, because not long after that, you had sororities approaching me to uh, uh, to do a fundraiser, and part of that fundraiser would be that they would rent out a room and then have people pay, pay 25 cents a piece to come in and just watch me dance. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Just watch okay. me dance. I said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, I thought it was crazy, you know. So, wow. yeah. Uh, but at some point, my mother called me, and there was some kind of competition, um, not dance competition, but just a, a talent contest uh-huh. of a radio personality that she knew, and they were putting it on. And she and she knew how the kids used to, you know would respond to me in terms of dancing. She said, "Why don't you come home 
and participate in this talent contest. So I said, okay. I said, so what I'm going to do? She said, well, just do what you do. I said, okay. So I come home, and um, it was at a it was a competition that's being run by the radio station, and whoever won the competition was going to be uh, have an opportunity to participate when the Ohio players, the very no, uh, sole uh, uh, group of that time, the Ohio players, were going to be coming to the city, and that person would open up for the Ohio players. Now, remember, this competition was mostly vocals, you know, uh, or, a com- or a comedian of some sort. And so I was the only person that walked up in there and started dancing. And I freaked them out so much that I ended up winning the competition. <laughs> so uh-huh. that, uh, the guy, somebody saw me at that, at that performance, a producer, a local producer, and came up and asked me would I perform at another event, and he would pay me. How much would I charge? Uh-huh. Now, no one had ever asked me, how much would you charge yeah. to dance? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> he said, well, go ask, your, ask, go ask your parents and tell them, right? Mm-hmm. So my mother was there, so I, I asked, and we didn't know what to ask for, so she just said $250. He said, he said, cool. And, uh, and so I went on and did the performance that he was talking about. And then afterwards, he told me, you know, I would have paid you 2000 if you had asked Whoa. for it. Uh-huh. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. I said, well, I'm glad you told, you're telling me now. You know, so I said, to, that's, when, that's when it wasn't the dance that was intriguing. It was the amount of time that I performed, which was less than five minutes, uh-huh. to receive $2,000 possibly in the future. Right. Then I started putting that together in my mind. And I was saying, and I was thinking about the way, you know, the amount of money that my parents and they were making, how many hours they had to work, you know, the regular nine to five and things of that sort. Mm. I was saying, man, this is. This is something <laughs> I need to think on. Yeah. And that's how it really kind of got started in my mind of changing what I would probably pursue yeah. once I got back to school. I continued doing the math and science stuff, but my mind started going towards there. And then the last part of what was the icing on the cake. Uh-huh was that I had seen, while in the ninth grade, uh, Alan Ailey had come to town. And that's when they were first becoming nationally known. And for the first time, I saw African-American, male and female, as a dance group dancing on stage. And even then, I may have said to myself, man, I love what I just saw. But it didn't occur to me that that's what I would do in the future. But Alvin Ailey ended up coming to our campus as a 
he's a sophomore or junior. And I say, oh, I mean, I'm going to go see, I want to go see this. Because I remember from the ninth grade how, the, how I saw them and how it affected me uh, from their performance. So they came to the campus, and prior to the performance, they held a workshop. Now, those who attend the workshop would be those who are in the dance department. But they didn't have very many African Americans in the theater or the dance department. Well, at least they had some. So they were asking people if they would be willing to come and participate. If you ever had dance in your life, so to speak, if you're African American on campus, if you would come and participate in this workshop. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll be there. So I went there and took the class and realized that um, all the technique that I had gotten, because it was primarily ballet that I had, never went away. And most people that were in the dance department were in there doing modern and jazz, though they took ballet, but they weren't ballet dancers. So when I show up and participate, everybody looking at me like, well, why aren't you in the dance department? Well, why aren't you this and that? Alvin Ailey comes up to me, and the thing that comes out of his mouth is, if you ever come to New York, look me up because I will put you on scholarship. So in my mind, Ailey is Ailey. The company that I had seen in the ninth grade, and I was so excited, that when he approached me and said that, that's when I knew I had to take it really serious mm. about what it is that I may want to do. And, again, from that point on, it was just a matter of me staying there for the next two years uh, at Michigan State, but I changed my major to, to engineering because of math and science. And it was going to take another two years or so, and I had already made my decision that after the fourth year I was going to head to New York because the movie uh, – the movie um, Fame and the television version of Fame had come into play. And um, I saw then that kids 14, 15, and 16 were turning professional, which means their decision was made a long time ago. And so in, in my mind, I said, okay, I'm going to do my four years. But when it's four years, if, if, even though I may have not finished, I'm out of here because I can't wait any longer. Not for what my interest is in. And that's how I ended up going to New York. At that point, what was your personal style like? You're saying that you, you know, you did a little path in ballet. So what what you look like when you did your performance and I was a raw dancer. I was you know, in my mind, I was still a raw dancer. But even when I went to New York, people saw that I had technique. I didn't see myself as technique. I never thought of it in terms of technique. I never knew that my body had already taken on in in the muscle structure and in the muscle um um control. Glutes. Yeah, the muscle uh -huh. control that was that was there was part of what made me this dancer when I would dance 
in these uh, competitions uh, for the up-to-date dancing that it was responsible for what they weren't able to do. Mm-hmm. I had an, I didn't have that type of uh, uh, analyzation going on in my mind because I didn't know it. Okay. And so when I got to New York, in my mind, I was doing the, you know, the locking, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, 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 soul train uh, locking the robot, and, and but at the same time could do any form of dance. And even when people would start, when I take a class. And let's say it was a jazz class, authentic jazz class. It was automatic because this my that movement was normal in my body because of the way my my family as a, a my family moves naturally. So I would take those classes, and they would think I had been doing authentic jazz my whole life in terms of as a professional, as a as a you know to study, and I hadn't had it at all. But my body would automatically go right into it. So, um, again, I didn't see it as anything special other than I could do this and I would do well in class. Well, at some point I was asked, so to say what style I was doing, I would just say pretty much it was a, a lock-in uh, along with um, uh, steps because I had very quick feet, kind of like the James Brown kind of stuff. So it didn't really... Um, uh, any type of form of dance that would consider as authentic jazz, it would be very easy for me to do because it's already in my body. So uh, I was a, I was a, is it called a tapestry of movement? Yeah. Um, that I, that was already in my body, and with the technique of dance, that only made it even um, better for those who was seeing me the first time as I was going to class and going to auditions. Cool. So, and then at some point, um, the first time I took a class with, her name was Thelma Hill. Uh, she taught authentic jazz. Uh, she saw me in her class and I did something that was out of the ordinary, just fell on the floor laughing and immediately ran into the other room we immediately ran into the other room and told the other teachers, y'all got to come see this, <laughs> right? And so, uh, and then afterwards, she made a phone call. She made a phone call. And that phone call was, she had told me during the class, she said, I don't know who you are. All I know is this. You one of the best dancers I have seen in 20 years of me teaching. Awesome. And then she said, but there's one thing that you need. She said, you need discipline. Now, I didn't know what she meant by that, because, you know, when you say discipline as a child, you, <laughs> what? Right, you need discipline, no, right? You. <laughs> she said, but you need discipline. Uh, is it my attitude or what? You know, mm-hmm. but... But she said, and I'm going to do this for you. So she goes to the other room. She makes a phone call. And the very next day, she uh, she said, this is what I want you to do tomorrow. I want you to head over to the Alvin Ailey Dance Studio. So I go over there, and as I when I got over there, that's when I found out that I was on scholarship. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to go through the audition process. Mm-hmm. Just a phone call from, from um, Thelma Hill. 
And uh, so, so I was there for three months. It was during the summer, and it was really extensive. So for those six months, I mean, for those three months, I had danced more than probably any other time in my life in terms of taking classes and getting the 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 uh the um literally the technique that I needed yeah. with the discipline. Okay. And then so from there, um I continued. So now any other questions? Well it sounds like started. you got to New York like drawn to I mean you, you signed up for an authentic jazz class knowing that Alvin Ailey had already requested for you to call him when you got to town. Right. And then that teacher still just you know, she saw that, I mean, I don't know, maybe you'd already passed her class or she just wanted you to have that. It's interesting to me that um, you went that route. And um, how did that, how did that discipline benefit you? Oh, it, it took me to a whole nother level because prior to me taking the class at Clarkson, I didn't have any money, right? So, a lot of times I would go to Clark Center and just watch class. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people knew me. A lot of the kids there, they were they didn't necessarily know me dancing wise. They just knew I was a person that always showed up at Clark Center and just watch class. They knew I wanted to dance, but they probably but they didn't know. Well, they figured it off because no everybody was you know was lacking in terms of money then. So everybody probably knew why I wasn't taking class. Uh, just so happened. But that particular time I took the class, but prior to that, I was already on scholarship at Sounds in Motion. Uh, Sounds in Motion, which is Diane McIntyre, which is to this day I consider as my mentor or one of my mentors. And uh, uh, so uh, I was taking classes there for free. So when I first got to New York, oh, that brings me back, I forgot about mentioning. Um, uh, um, Dorian. Uh, <clears throat> Dorian uh, Williams. She had come to Flint to teach a class because she was already living in New York. And I was at home during the summer and there was a class that was being done there and I heard about it. So I went and only two people showed up, myself and one other person. And so she went on to talk to class and then she was another person that kind of like fed into my mind. She said, "You need to come. To, you need to go to New York. They need male dancers like you. You need to come to New York." And that was the reason that I actually said that I would also go to New York because I. She said, "If you come to New York, um, I'm gonna hook you up with Sounds in Motion, okay. and um, just give me a call." So that was the initial reason that I went because I was already gonna be on scholarship at a place. I mean, I didn't have to take class. I mean, I didn't have to pay for class. So, but then while there, that's when people would mention about Clark Center. And um, and so that's when I started going down to Clark Center just to visit this place that these other dancers kept mentioning. That's how I ended up down there. Gotcha. How did okay. you survive? Um, <clears throat> I had a friend of, I had a cousin of mine that, knew I was going to, that I wanted to go to New York. He was working in the sh- what we call the shop, which is the cars, automobile factory. And he said that he would pay for me to go to New York, and he was going to um, 
called a re- uh, his father uh, that he had just met and um, uh, see if I could stay there. So when I got to New York, I had a place to stay. Yeah. And so I had a place to stay. Uh, I have uh, food. I had food. Uh, I just didn't have money to do anything. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, at one point, uh, I, I got a job at a Burger King. At first, that's the only nine to five job I had for years. Mm-hmm. But I did that for a short period of time, and that's what allowed me to have transportation money to go back and forth to take classes. Yep. All right. I think we're caught up. Keep going. Okay. So uh, from there, um, I was just simply taking classes, but also Diane McIntyre with Sounds of Motion a lot of times would allow her students to participate in certain performances with the company. So I would get a little bit of performance uh, experience that way. Uh, when I went to Ailey and spent all my time there, that, mean, that meant I wasn't spending any more time as I was in motion. But when I came out after those three months, it was as if I had been dancing for or been, had studied for, let's say, four or five years. But that's because I had already had the technique in my body. I just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't have the discipline to, to, to go over and over and over with my, with my body and my muscles to obtain what I was able to attain. So that when I left out of there and started going back to sounds and motion, that's when everything started to move because I was immediately put into her company. And then that's when I started touring and all this other stuff, and then people started hearing about me. Um, um, yeah, they started hearing about me. And then this, it was from there that I got involved in, uh, somebody came up and was involved in a theater project and they were looking for someone to who could do mine. Um, and I was a person that could do mine because of the robot and all this other stuff that mm-hmm. I had taught myself. And and that's what started me in the theater portion of of my life. And it was through there that even while at that particular place, participating in that particular uh, theater piece, that someone else asked me to uh, come to an audition for um, um, the Nick Carroll for a project that she was doing. And now she had done a couple of Broadway shows as a director. And I, w- I got that audition, and that's when I ended up meeting Tally Beatty, who was the choreographer. Tally Beatty is the one that from everybody that I spoke to when I first got to New York, they would speak of Alan Ailey, the company, but they say, they will always say, but it was Tally Beatty's choreography mm. that the Alvin Ailey company got its reputation. And it was also, of course, Alvin Ailey's revelations and 
uh, a couple other pieces that became masterpieces. But up until Ailey came up with those pieces and throughout the years with choreography for his company, it was primarily uh, Tally Beatty's choreography. So Tally sees me uh, in this audition, and I get the audition. And from that point on, uh, anything that Tally was doing on other dance companies, that if there was a solo segment that was to take place, he would invite me to come to the rehearsals of these dance companies that didn't necessarily know who I was, and he would choreograph the piece, and then he would get to that part where he would create the solo space. That's when he would invite me to meet these companies. <laughs> so I would walk in the room, and he would say, okay, LD, I want you to come right here, and I want you to do this, this, and this. And now these dancers are seeing me for the first time. Yeah. Right? And the solo that's being given to the piece is not them. So that kind of like created, you know, some issues down the line. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, You're so, man. and this is strictly, right, so this is strictly modern, modern yeah. jazz dancing. They have nothing to do with tap. Yeah. But one day, my cousin, uh, he dares me. He, you know, like, well, I dare you to, you say you can dance. Mm -hmm. We don't know the kind of dance you're doing, but you say you can dance. But he says, so he says, um, um, if you can dance like you say you can, why don't you go to the Apollo mm -hmm. and participate in their competition? Amateur night at the Apollo. Wednesday night, amateur night at the Apollo. Uh, and so we made a bet. I told him I would win. So I already had the experience of how people respond to me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so he didn't believe it. So I said, okay, I'm going to go. And I went on and uh, I didn't even audition. I went to the stage door because you're supposed to send in a postcard. They told me. I went to the stage door. The guy told me, you got to put in a, you got to send in a postcard to request an audition. And then uh, once they choose you, you got two weeks to come in and audition, blah, blah, blah. So, but anyway, he's standing there. This is stage dormant. Yeah. So I said, okay. He said, so by, by the way, so what do you do? I say, I dance. He said, you dance? I said, yeah, because, again, with the competition, it was usually vocals and comedians. Uh -huh. I said, he said, you dance? I said, yeah. And what kind of dance you do? I said, well, I do different types. He said, he said um, so I started to walk away. He said, hold on, hold on, hold on. He said, do this. Create something and then come back here and be here at 6 o'clock next Wednesday. I'm going to try to get you on. I said, okay. So I did, and sure enough, he got me on stage. I get on stage, and I win. <laughs> <laughs> Apollo, after night at the Apollo. 
And the audience went crazy. Awesome. It was like, you know, they had booed some folks off. But when I was on stage, when I got on stage, they they were running up to the front. It was like Michael Jackson or James Brown in their heyday, the way the folks were running up to the stage. And when it was over, the guy that was the host gave me this great big hug. And he said, man, a dancer hadn't won at the Apollo in over 25 years. And he said, if you could tap to go along with what you have naturally, there'll be nothing in the world that could stop you. That was Charles Honey Coles, who was the host of Amateur Night at that time. Wow. And I didn't know who Charles Honey Coles was. I didn't know anything about tap. I didn't know about tap dancers. All I knew, I looked at him as just somebody that was, you know, up in age. Yeah. That was saying something to me about something I wasn't really interested in. I just did it as a dare. (laughs) You know? And so when he said all that to me, I just, you know, I just brushed it off. I was feeling good that he felt about good about that. But, uh, still wasn't nothing I was um, that impressed with until I would go down to Clock Center dance studio and people would be talking in the hallways and things like that. So and, you know, at some point I would say, you know, you know, I was, you know, um, uh, night at the Apollo. Yeah. You know, yeah, they say you did, yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, you know, this guy, this guy named let's see. I think he said his name was Honey Coles. And then I would get, what? Honey Coles? Honey Coles? You mean Charles Honey Coles? I said, yeah, this guy named Honey Coles. No, 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 no. Charles Honey Coles. I said, yeah. I got that enough times. I said, oh, you know what? I think I need to go to the library. So I went to the library to look up who this guy was that everybody was freaking out about when I would mention his name. Oh, yeah. And when I went to the library and saw and read all this stuff, I was so happy he had given me his home number. (laughs) (laughs) He said, if and when you ever decide Uh (laughs) that this is something that you might consider, I want you to call me. So I went from the library. At that time, there was no cell phones or nothing like that. Right. You know, and uh, got to a phone and called him. And he set up a, a time and space at a studio. Sweet. To work out. And that's how I started tapping. Mm-hmm. Now, he, even so then. how old were you? I remember, I, I was... 21. 21. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, I was 21. Because remember, I was, you know, I had already spent four years in college. Yeah. Uh, All that happened pretty fast in New York. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So that, I might have been 21 or 22 by the time sure. that, 22 by the time I end up meeting him. Um, no, no, I was still 20. I was turning 21. That's what it was. 
I was turning 21. So by the time I got with him, I was 21. But anyway, so, um, and this is in the beginning, uh, literally this is in the beginning stage. So I was already, I had done that, and I was still on scholarship at Sounds in Motion, uh, and I hadn't done the Ailey thing yet. Oh, okay, gotcha. Okay, I hadn't done the Ailey thing yet. Um, so I kind of like backtracked to get to that point about the tap. As I'm talking with you, I know at some point we had to get to the point about me uh, dealing with tap because everything I had spoken to up to that point was about my uh, modern and jazz, which I had become known for first. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so uh, so I'm in the studio with Honey, and he goes, he said, now I'm going to show you a couple of things here, but I'm going to show it to you because it will give you a way to be able to practice uh, because you have a little bit of something that I'm giving you. But at the same time, I'm giving you something that is mine so that down the road you'll be able to tell folks that you got this step from Honey Coles. Mm-hmm. Okay? He said, but at the same time, he said, I don't want you to be a, um, a cookie-cutter tap dancer. So I do not want you to go and start taking classes. I want you to teach yourself to tap. And I'm giving you a foundation here, giving you something to work on. And now we're, gonna, we're not going to see each other a lot, but when I do see you, I want you to show me what you've come up with. And that was our relationship. Cool. Okay. So the next time that I saw him was um, not the next time, but a couple of times later, at one point, we hadn't seen each other in, in in some time. And then I hear that he was doing Bubbling Brown Sugar on Broadway. Because at the time I saw him initially when I first saw him, he was in retirement. In some kind of way, they pulled him out of retirement. And they got him to do Bubbling Brown Sugar. And I found out about that. So I go backstage um, to see him, and I showed him what I had come up with from the last time we had seen each other, which had been really over a year. But what he didn't know was I had moved from my uh, cousin's relative's place to a space where I was, it was a downstairs and no one was underneath me, which meant that I could tap for hours at a time. And then I, from there, I moved into a, a hotel space that had become a residential space that for artists that allows you to make as much noise as you want all day long until 10 o'clock that night. Cool. So it gave me all this time to work on whatever tap I wanted to do and things that I was coming up with to the point where I had tapped more probably in that six-month period to a six- to nine-month period, more than all the the tap dancers who have been going and taking classes and probably been taking classes for years because I would start tapping, let's say, like 9 o'clock in the morning, and I would think I would have tapped for probably 45 minutes to an hour, but it would be six hours that would have passed by. Wow. So... 
And this was happening on a daily basis. So it was really concentrated. And so when you I was listening to music in there or just you? Just me. Uh-huh. No music. Nope. Just me and Tabs. Yep. And um and I was teaching myself to go from one thing to the other. From one thing and it wasn't I wouldn't teach myself I wasn't teaching myself tap combinations. I was teaching myself to hear what I was doing and how can I go from that sound and that rhythm and flow into this other sound and this other rhythm smoothly. So for a long time, I never knew what I was doing. I just knew how to do it. And I would know how to do it because it wasn't the tap steps that I was keeping in mind, but it was the feeling of my legs and the way that my legs moved that created the sound that came from my feet. And so for a long time, I didn't know the names of the tap steps I was doing. I just knew how to flow right into them. So at one point, as I said, I went to see Honey when he was in South Brother Brown Sugar. So while there, I showed him what I could do. His eyes bucked (laughs) because it was like this cat just started for all intents and purposes. Yeah. And he's already at a level that he could be considered one of the best tap dancers out there right now. Ever. Well, I don't know at that time. Not, no, not that time. I don't know about yeah. ever. But uh-huh. he knew from what he had seen yeah. of those young cats that were tapping, mm-hmm. that I was, he considered me as the best young tapper out there. So you got caught up in under a year. Say it again? You got caught up in under a year. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. With, with sheer <laughs> determination and self-discipline and tapping and, into your own creativity. Right. And then, and then not long after that, I remember when I went to the library that one of the comments that was made in that documentary that I had seen was that Honey had done the same thing. Oh, wow. He had... He was known for whatever it is he was doing in Philadelphia. But then his partner left. He was part of a group, and they left. In in some kind of way, they disbanded. But what he did, he went into a room and didn't come out for almost a year before anybody knew about him past that, of what he was already has started to become known for. But when he came out of that room, he was this whole other tab dancer that people just, he just blew people away. Now, even though I had seen that, it didn't dawn on me that that's what I did. I had actually paralleled what he had done. And, he and that's why people... You, he taught you to do that. He 
like you said, mentored you to follow his footsteps, not step for step, but through his creative process. Exactly. And that's why he said his main thing was, I do not want you to become a cookie cutter dancer. And usually if you if you take class and you and you just simply be a classroom tap dancer and you can be really come really good technically as a tap dancer. But it won't come from you. It'll come from without of you, come from out of you, and so people won't feel what it is that they need to feel that which comes from in you. Wow. He really wanted to see you, not him. He didn't want to see his reflection. Exactly. Though in my mind, I wanted to be a tap dancer like him, but in my mind, my theme, when I saw him, I saw how fluid he was compared to the tap dancers that I was seeing. I saw how he made it look so smooth and so easy, but I thought it was because of the height that he carried and the slimness that he was in terms of his stature. And so he would do things and it would be like just floating. So in my mind, I was saying, okay, I want, so when I say about my legs, I would kind of like try to imitate the look of his legs mm-hmm. when he was tapping. Sure. And that's, and so when, I um, realized that I wasn't creating steps. I was creating movement that created the sounds of the steps that I was doing. But that's why I said it took me years later to break down to myself what it was that I was doing. And then I say, oh, okay, so this is what they call the, you know, the uh, power and roll. Um, this is what they call, you know, so different concepts and names of, of steps that were being done, you know. So, um, yeah, yeah. And then years later, you know, um, I started becoming, not years later, but uh, not long after that when I would go to these auditions for Broadway shows and things, um, my tapping was like nobody couldn't even compare. Right. Um but the shows that the show that I ended up getting though was my one and only and and big deal. Even though I didn't have to audition for big deal. That's with Bob Fawcett, because um, his office called me for that particular production. Uh but when I auditioned for my one and only, um, it was due to the tap, for sure. And um and it was after I got the show and we in our first day of rehearsal. That Honey Coles and I realized we were doing the same show, though he was one of the principals in the show, who eventually ended up in the Tony Award, and I was in the chorus. And so it was such a wonderful thing that his mentor was participating in a Broadway production that he didn't have anything to do with in terms of me getting the show. We find out during the first day of rehearsal that we were both doing the show. So you can imagine how we felt uh, during that reunion, so to speak. That is awesome. Can you tell us what it was like to dance on Broadway? 
Okay. Um, when someone asks that particular question, I'm trying to figure out uh, what one is really asking. Uh, other than it was exciting, uh, it was a goal, it was a dream uh, that had come true, and uh, performing in that moment, uh, it it was it was good. It was good. Everything was positive. Uh, but outside of that, uh, just life in general, then, you know, there's always things that occur. Um, but just in general, when it comes to Broadway, uh, I feel really good and positive about the expressive fact that Charles Henry Coles was part of my first experience of actually doing Broadway. Up until then, I had done a couple of shows that were on their way to Broadway, but they never made it. Uh, so this particular one was perfect for that. Yeah. And then the other Broadway show that I did was a big deal. In that particular case, I really didn't have to audition. I got a call from uh, Bob Fossey's office, and they were letting me know that he was very interested in me doing a particular character uh, that they were uh, creating for this uh, original piece that he wanted to do. I say original piece. The story itself was an old piece uh, from a 1959, I think 1959 movie. Uh, and I forget the name of the movie, but the storyline uh, was kind of the same. Only this, in this case, it was going to be uh, an all-black production in terms of actors and actresses uh, called Big Deal. Uh, oh, so the name of him, now that I think about it, the name of the film, I think, was Big Deal on Madonna Street. And I think it was 1959 film. Uh, and so the story was was about these uh, uh, thugs, um, young thugs, not, not necessarily young, but, you know, poor white, maybe Italian or whatever. And... Um, um, Big money to them was to was to break into a pawn shop and take the money that's there, and they were supposed to live the life of Riley, so to speak, if they ever got to the money that was in that pawn shop. And uh, so things, a lot of things happen and goes awry, and it never really comes to fruition, which is the same thing that happened with, of course, in our storyline. So, but the show itself was wonderful because he ended up getting the Tony Award for choreography for a piece called uh, uh, Beat Me Daddy, Eight to the Bar, from that song, from the, I guess the 30s, Beat Me Daddy, Eight to the Bar. So that was one of the songs that uh, that was used. But again, for Broadway, I really enjoy uh, doing Broadway because it's the pinnacle of what one seeks to achieve as a person in theater, dance and theater, but specifically theater. And and anything that happens past that, whether it's television or film, is like icing on the cake. Where when it comes to television and film, uh, you will make the real money, but the prestige of doing Broadway will always be there uh, because not everybody gets a chance to do Broadway uh, or have the talent to do Broadway. But you can get away with things when it comes to doing television and film. And so that's why you would see back in that time that a lot of the superstars that were doing that were film stars, they would always say 
on these talk shows that if they ever had a chance, they would love to be able to do a Broadway show, though they never really got a chance to do that. Mm-hmm. Let's flash forward to today. Mm-hmm. You are working on a show called We Too that is a retrospective on your life. Um, can you tell us about where that starts and how you've created it? Uh, yeah, actually, it started from, uh, well, I already knew the, uh, what I would bring to the table if I ever decided to, to write, uh, a, a, a write, be the author of a project. And uh, one day I was asked, uh, while living in Michigan, I was asked to uh, participate in this storytelling event, kind of like a moth type event, in which uh, the goal is to um, stand with the pen light um, on you and uh, a microphone, and you don't use the stage. You just stand there and just tell your story. In one spot, you tell your story. And it was, was supposed, it usually can be anywhere from four minutes to usually around 10, 11 minutes at the most. Uh, but this person uh, created this opportunity uh, for people to get involved with a moth light presentation, but we could go over the 10-minute mark. And in that particular case, when she asked uh, would I be willing to tell my story, because she knew I had been in New York and thinking about all this stuff, and she also knew I had a child, uh, I raised a child. So as a single parent, so she um, she asked, was there any stories that I could bring to the table uh, to uh, make it exciting for what she was being the curator for? So I said, okay, let me think on it, and then I'll get back with you. And then that's when I started. I put something together and went and did this this um, this event. Told my story, and the story uh, dealt with me raising my child. Uh, my daughter, as a single parent, um, and the trials and tribulations uh, that come with raising a child, teaching, and 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 uh, giving your knowledge and passing that knowledge on to your child, and hoping that they receive it enough so that when they're not around you, that their thinking capacity will allow them to reach back on some things that they may not know. Uh, what to do or how to do, but they will hear your voice in the background. And in um, me understanding that, that's what I did with her. Uh, so I wrote the story uh, to tell it there. And it was just about her and myself um, until she went to college. Mm-hmm. Well, after that... I was in New York. This happened, I think, in around 20, I mean, 2014 okay. or 2013. This might be around 2013. And so when I moved down to Houston because of the water issue in Flint, Michigan, and I moved here because my daughter had come here uh, and went to school here and was staying there. She wanted me to come down and start my life again by living here in Houston to get away from the, the poison of the water in Flint. Mm-hmm. So while here, at some point, I was, I was going to New York 
to meet up with someone on another situation or another opportunity, and I met up with this guy, and it just so happened that he had this space that he had just purchased, uh, uh, a studio space that he wanted to allow people that were involved in the theater to come and know that this rehearsal and or performance space existed. So he knew of me um, from my past, so he figured that if he can get me to come there to do a piece, that I might be able to bring some people down that way would be interested to come down to to see his space and how I use the space by doing a, a project. Yeah. So he asked me if there was a project that uh, that I could bring to life in a theatrical way that could, that could be done in a studio. And I said, I have a story, but I haven't written it in a theatrical way. So, um, but with that opportunity, that gave me uh, the reason to go back, take my story, expand the story, and make it a one-man show. And so I did. Um, And then after I get back to Houston, I'm doing something at the Ensemble Theater for, uh, you know, for a corporate uh, performance that I'm usually asked to participate when it comes to the Ensemble Theater here in Houston. And after that particular performance, I was told that there was a grant available for new works or works that, that one has uh, worked on but still had things that could be beneficial if it was uh, put on its feet uh, in the black box at the theater. And I told them, yes, I do. And so I, since I had put in, since I had performed this other project, you know, we too, when it was in New York, it was called uh, One Man Dance. That's what it was called. Uh-huh. And, but when, but when I came, when I created for here, um, the director that, you know, with this grant the, uh, at the ensemble, they were going to, I would be able to choose someone to direct it if I need a choreographer, if I need a musician, if I need a musical director, if I need costume. They were going to be able to take care of all of that. Except, you know, and I'm, like, really excited because I was like, oh, man, this can really be put on his feet, right? So. Uh, the guy that one of the people that looked at the script and got excited about the script, uh, he said that he would like to do it. And I said, and they wanted to know it was all right for him to direct it. I said, sure, I'll, I'll be fine with that particular person. So we get together. Then he tells me that after reading the script, he saw it no longer as a one-person show. He saw that there are a lot of lines in my script that I speak on these other characters. And so he said, well, maybe let's do this. Let's get someone else that have the ability to uh, present different characters in your piece while you continue to be the narrator of the piece as opposed to just telling them what they said, have this other person actually act out 
the scenes that I was speaking about. And then, of course, there would be times where I would be acting with that character going back and forth because of the story itself speaking about certain scenes. Mm -hmm. So then it became a two-person play, um, uh, and we ended up calling it, I ended up changing the title to We Too. And, uh, And I loved what that director brought to the table and with that vision, I I see myself actually taking it uh, elsewhere, performing it elsewhere, and it becoming a, a tour. So my goal is to be able to take it on tour uh, around the state and, and around the country, and if need be, to take it to where uh, it could actually be an off-Broadway show. The reason why I say off-Broadway as opposed to Broadway is because I feel it's the type of show that should be in a more intimate setting, um, and it will create the feel. Uh, it'll be easier to create the feel in that type of atmosphere as opposed to a large theater. Uh, so it's really about a father and daughter. Yes. Is that and yet the audience can access those words of wisdom that you raised your daughter on. Exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it does it have dance in it? Oh yes, it does. Um, that was good. Uh, yes, it does. Um, because of my reputation um, in the in the tap community, at least uh, from over the years, um, uh, one of the things that was guaranteed, even in the one man show, I made sure that. Um, uh, that one man show that I did in New York, uh, I wanted to create a situation where not only would I be able to tell the story about myself and my daughter, but I would expand the story where I was expanded where the beginning of it would be um, added on, whereas the story I had told as the one, as the storytelling event is started, uh, that would actually be the second act. So I had to create the first act. And that first act, I decided that as part of this story, I can I can delve more into my history as a performer. And so I decided to begin the story uh, from the moment that or the day that my daughter was born. It just so happened that the day that my daughter was born, I was actually in rehearsal uh, on the soundstage for the film, uh, The Cotton Club, which is now called The Cotton Club Encore, which is on Blu-ray and DVD as of this past December, 35 years later. Uh, so anyone who wants to see that, you'll be able to see me in that in the movie, uh, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, so uh, my story of We Too begins on the set of me doing the number that um, – that was that was to be featured in the film. Uh, so there were two numbers I ended up doing. Uh, one to give the flair of what I've always done uh, in terms of Broadway and things of that sort, and then of course the number I call it the one man dance. Uh, that um, is kind of like the the hit of the show because everybody just kind of like it stops the show actually, uh, as I'm performing it. And then it flows into the history 
of me performing on Broadway and things that occurred when um, uh, once I left the show, my one and only, and got the show and got the film, um, um, The Cotton Club. Yeah. Sorry. So uh, anyway, so that's so yes, there's definitely tap in it. And you show how you chose to walk out of the limelight to be there for your daughter. Yes, that's part of the story. And um, even with that, um, I just want to leave with that because I want people to come and see the show to get the story because mm-hmm. um, I don't want to give too much away on it. Uh, yeah, about I, it. I, you know, I've seen some of the development of it. It's <laughs> phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't wait to see what you do with it and how how it comes really, you know, to be as, as in the way that you're dreaming about it. What where are you at in terms of stages of development? Um, what do you have left to do for it? Well, once I finished doing the uh, workshop and the set and everything was created for the set, uh, the opportunity past that was that uh, I was I'm able to use the set that was built specifically for that production. And um, there's, um, what's what's the name of the theater? Um, I can't think of the theater. Um, Oh, Deluxe. Yeah, the Deluxe, thank you. Uh, Deluxe Theater, uh, which is uh, newly renovated, uh, they're allowing me um, to bring the production there so it could be actually done on stage um, as opposed to in a black box, and then right. no longer, as and and so that is actually, and because of the size of the of the the theater mm-hmm. and the seating capacity, it actually reminds me of of what an off Broadway theater would look like. Yeah. Uh, so I'm very excited that I that I'm being asked to perform there initially, um, May. Uh, 15th and 16th and 17th, I think, uh, were the dates that we were actually supposed to perform. Uh, but because of the shutdown of everything, because of the virus, uh, we do not know exactly now when that opportunity is going to present itself. Um, <clears throat> but when it does, uh, there's also another uh, theater called Mecca uh, or TBH um, that – uh, is also I'm speaking with that once I pre- uh, perform it at that at the deluxe that I'll then be able to move it to that theater provided their dates are are open and because of this virus I'm quite sure there's going to be a lot of dates open now because no one knows when uh, <clears throat> and how they're going to um, revamp themselves to get their projects up and running for the audience to want to come out and see it. And that's the other thing I got to take into consideration. I really don't know how soon that I'm going to be willing to actually um, put it up because it's not going to make sense if people are still afraid to come out um, and to be close uh, to see the um, and not feel that they are in a position that they might, you know, catch the virus. Yeah. So. 
that's where I am right now in terms of not knowing, but yet in my heart, I'm still excited because I still know that I have a project that's ready to go. It's just that it's just a matter of when that is to take place, I can make sure that it does. Now, in the meantime, mm-hmm. um, uh, there I am working on a, um, a script, uh, more of a book on the experience that I had before I came uh, to Houston in terms of my spiritual life and things that came to me in terms of revelations. So I'm working on that during this time because I don't have anything but time. So uh, once that came to my mind that I've been wanting to do this since 2003, it's given me the opportunity to sit down and write in chronologically things that occurred during that particular time that I think is going to be exciting. So this is simply another project uh, that um, I can uh, put my mind and effort into during this time of uh, solitude. Yeah, wonderful. Would you like to share one of your experiences with Revelation? Um, yes, I can. Um, one thing... One experience that I that I received when when I was kind of like in a meditative state, and <clears throat> I had never thought on these things before, but it just simply came to mind um, that it had to do with the Lord. And uh, one of the things that came out of the revelations uh, was that I got to know who He was because of who He told me who He was in the understanding that occurred in my mind and was so new to me uh, that it it became a, a immediate paradigm shift as to what I was receiving and understanding when I read the Bible. It was totally different as if I was reading a totally different book because of what had come to me. And one of the things that come to me was the knowledge of the knowledge of the word. The knowledge of the word, the understanding of the knowledge of the word, and what all that entails in terms of one spirit. And that in itself ended up telling me that the knowledge of the word was the son, which is why it's called the word, is the words that expounded out of the mouth of Jesus, not the physical man Jesus, is being the son. The son of God actually being the words in the spirit of that word that was expounded out of his mouth. Now, only through the understanding of that word that only he can give is through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is operating out of the understanding of that knowledge that only he can give from the knowledge of him. And then him actually ends up being truth. In truth, uh, when verbalized, is wisdom. So the only way to get to truth, which is the Father, you first have to have the knowledge. Therefore, when you when the Word says, uh, "I am the truth," the, the what is it? I am the light, the truth. I'm very bad with memorization of 
Yeah. Uh, what is it? The, I am the light. The way, the truth, and the light. Thank you. The way, the truth, and the light. And the only way to get to me is through my son, right? So, and, it's, it, and that made sense to me when all this came to me because in order to get to truth, you first have to get the knowledge and the understanding. That understanding is actually the life and the light, which brings you to who he is. It doesn't make you him. It makes you understand who he is and how he operates out of you. And uh, wisdom, when verbalized, I should say uh, truth, when verbalized, is called wisdom. That's why in Proverbs, the whole book of Proverbs is the Lord being himself operating in terms of that which is him, which is the book of wisdom. And if you obtain that wisdom and receive it in your heart, then you'll operate out of that wisdom and not out of the world, so to speak, and not say the world meaning that which is not of truth or of wisdom, which is operating out of what you think is right and wrong. So. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was clear the way that I expressed it, but that's the best way I could do it at this at this time. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say give people an idea of how um, how special you are in as an artist by really just saying in your own words um, what your style is and what you've innovated. Um, how you are, you know, who you are uh, when you perform. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, tell, tell us really, like, what you think kind of makes you unique. <clears throat> okay. First, I have to say that when it comes to different styles or styles, I feel that movement, there's never a new movement that comes into play, ever. It's just, it becomes new for, it comes new for a generation that have not experienced or seen that movement. Um, And so therefore, people will say that they create their own. Uh, But what I would say is that because of those who came before me and the things I've seen of them, but I can only relate to it that even if I hadn't seen them, though I may do the movement the same, I didn't necessarily create it. But at the same time, those who are seeing it on me are seeing it for the first time. So to them, it's a new creation. So with that in mind, I would say that if you want to think of the style in which I dance, uh, if, it, if you speak in terms of tap dancers, it would have to be a combination of Honey Coles, Jimmy Slide, and Bunny Briggs. If you just watch me for the first time and you know of Bunny Briggs, you would think it was strictly Bunny Briggs. Mm -hmm. But my flow is different because my approach is that of Honey's. Mm -hmm. But the result, because my ability to do different things and move a certain way and do slides, you could then say, okay, because Jimmy Slide was known for his slides, then I have that influence as well. 
So you have to think of it as a combination or accumulation of the three and try to visualize what that is. And then you can say, in the oneness that I am, that would be me. But in order for you to do that, you have to know the visual of the other three. Where can people find you and connect with you online and see you? Okay. Well, I have my own channel um, that one can go to, but I also have a, a website that will also take you to my channel. So let me give you uh, the website. Um, that way people can uh, uh, see me. Uh, I'll put it in the notes, too. Yes, you can put it in the notes. Um, <clears throat> but the website is... Um, as uh, is AL Efficacy Movement, and there's uh, AL EFF I C A C Y M O V E M E N T dot org. AL, which represents Al D. Lewis, AL, and then efficacy, E F F I C A Y, and then movement uh, dot org. Um, <clears throat> that will take you to the website, and you can take a look at, you know, different things. You can see uh, my resume, bio, and things that sort, but other things that I've also done. Uh, just browse through it, uh, and you get that. And then uh, there's, on every page, practically, uh, that you go on the website, uh, there's a link to something that can actually take you to uh, um, my uh, channel. Okay, great. Um, Yes. And then in terms of digging in a little deeper with the history to see Honey Coles and Jimmy Slide and Honey Briggs. Right. All you have to do is go on YouTube uh -huh. and, and, and type in their name. Great. And um, you'll be able to see what their styles are like. Okay, great. We've got some research to do. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, by the way, did I, so uh, uh, did I actually answer all the questions that you, at the end that you were just asked, or that was this one, or was there something I'm missing? Yeah, yeah, no, we're we're up to date. I think um, I just kind of wanted to ask you, like, have you been dancing, like, since day one, or you know, at this point? I mean, we're eight weeks. Um, we're on uh, we're on week eight day. To okay. the shutdown, right. as you described it. So, have you been dancing? Well, actually, I've not danced specifically, meaning live, but because I was asked to um, participate in an event that was supposed to be live, they decided to do it virtual. Uh, and I was supposed to create something here in my apartment, but because I do not have the the material to be able to do that is all carpet. I don't have a wooden floor, anything of that sort. They said, well, okay, well, since we have um, in our archives a uh, performance that you did for us, this was um, uh, uh, it's called Ten Tiny Dances, right. um, that they said, well, could we use that uh, that's in our archives and create uh, and, and allow your performance from there to be a part of that particular series of dances that's going to take place within a week and a half or two weeks. Uh, 
And I said, sure. So in that case, as opposed to me actually performing um, live myself, it was a video that they had uh, uh, filmed when I actually uh, performed for them a couple of years ago. And so that was brought to the masses as a new piece. So it was all good as if I was performing live because mm-hmm. I had an audience. Whereas with the others that are shown, except for one other uh, of the other dancers of that called Ken Tiny Dancers, uh, they actually create their own so it's without audience. But mine, it did at least have the audience. So you're really not dancing at home now? Not just modern, boogie in? Uh, in my apartment? Yeah. Uh, well, my thing is this. I've always tapped. Yeah. All, all, you know, throughout the day, whether it's on carpet or anything else, not, you know, I don't have to have my tap shoes on because mm. my motion of what I, you know, when I'm listening to music, um, and usually there's a tune called Caravan that I oh, like yeah. to listen to. And, uh, and usually when I'm playing that, I'll start doing movements, tap movements, um, because, again, I'm not worried about what I'm creating in terms of sound with my feet, but the motion of my legs. So I already know I'm, I'm achieving whatever it is sound that I need just by moving my legs. Um, and so... Yeah, so I'm dancing every day in that sense. But, you know, when I do that, I I never think of me as working out. I just do it because I (laughs) just do it. (laughs) Great. It's like breathing. (laughs) Wonderful. What's your motto? My motto would be stay focused and know that when you have a purpose, all that you do will be for him, meaning God. Be, be a part of this. Great. 